HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by HH Bespoke Spirits, featuring HH Bespoke Gin, Rum, and Vodka. Learn more at hhbespokespirits.com. This week on Meet and 3, it's the final episode of our series on global trade. We're thinking futuristically, from China's ambitious plans for a new Silk Road to the future of borders and automation. If you're a banana, you know, it's easy to cross the border. But if you're a person who's trying to follow the jobs, uh, it's a lot more difficult, if not impossible, to do so in an authorized and safe fashion. They love food trucks and they love growing your own food because these things are not dependent on essentially government systems. So there's a whole politics to pretzels on the dark web. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. We're recording remotely, and today is Tuesday, February 23rd, 2021. So we've got a, a great group of guests today. We're going to talk about the intersection of beer and wine. Uh, let's just go around the room. So I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host. Uh, BR? Uh, yeah, BR Rolia, uh, formerly of Shelton Brothers Importers, and uh, now all-around beer person. Great. Jake? Jake Endress, uh, co-owner at Crooked Run Brewing in Virginia. And Patrick? Hi, I'm Patrick Rue. I'm the owner and winemaker in training at Erosion. All right. So what, what started this whole episode was um, in the winter, I was reading about um, the TTB had uh, allowed different sizes of cans and uh, Patrick's new winery, Erosion, popped up. And I started realizing that uh, Union Beer Distributing in New York was selling Patrick's wine in cans. And we're not going to talk about that, but it, it took me way back because, you know, in this little lifetime of craft beer, not even 10 years ago, uh, Patrick Rue at the brewery in uh, Southern California was really an icon for many of us, made some outstanding beers and was also uh, one of the few master cicerones uh, in America. So uh, to finding out that he had, that he had gone over to a winery um, was quite the story. So, Patrick, just tell us a little bit about your your winery in uh, in Napa, up in Northern California, and um, we're going to take this conversation to the intersection of beer and wine uh, with our rest of our guests. Great. Well, yeah, I started uh, Erosion about two years ago. I thought there was a kind of a a need for well, craft beer is so innovative, and I love uh, I love the culture and um, just how they're essentially isn't any rules when it comes to for a lot of craft breweries. And I wanted to kind of bring the same approach to wine, which tends to be very traditional and has a lot of rules. Um, so we are trying to trying to have our fun at uh, in the wine world in Napa Valley. Uh, our winery is located just north of Yonville and um, we're, we have a tap room in St. Helena and we'll be, we'll be making beer in St. Helena soon as well. So we're not just a winery; we're we're a brewery and a meadery, and uh, kind of where where all these fun things can uh, collide. And you got wine in cans too, which is always fun. Yeah, kind of brings the craft beer touch to it. Um, makes it a little bit more casual, and it's really nice for a single serve. Um, you have three cans that equal seven fifty milliliter kind of bottle of wine, so you have three chances to 
to open up uh, one of our um, one of our wines, which um, yeah, a lot more opportunities to to enjoy it. So Patrick, just to go a little deeper, um, you know, what did you learn about wine from brewing beer? Well, we did a lot of the brewery does a lot of uh, beer wine hybrids. So since uh, I think 2009 was the first year that we brought in grapes from Santa Barbara. And um, every year we got a little bit, little bit better at it, um, essentially uh, doing a co-fermentation uh, with, uh, with wort. And um, so we had some really, really cool results. We did it both on the sour beer side and on kind of the big barrel-aged beer side, usually using uh, Black Tuesday, our uh, big old imperial stout as, as the base. Um, so making things that don't really fit the category of beer or wine. And uh, I thought, you know, why not, why not just... Uh, take it a step further and actually just make wine. I'll tell you, it, it seems like um, it's, it's more the, you know, the rule than the exception now. I was just the other day up in New England. Uh, Chris the Scruggs, who's a winemaker in Vermont, came out with a, a, a kind of co-ferment called a co, uh, co-cellar with Shaxbury. And it was some of her grapes, but, but, but with cider. Um, what are some other things that you're seeing that that are interesting along those regards? Um, you know, a few wineries in the in Central California area um, uh, are doing essentially dry hopped pet nets. Or there's, you know, I think there's also some wineries in Oregon that are also doing dry hopped kind of aromatic white wines. So I think that's really, really promising and fun um, way to kind of integrate uh, the, the world of beer with the world of wine. And, you know, who says that hops need to, you know, strictly be an ingredient in beer? Yeah, no, that's a good, good point. Now let's go to Jake. So, Jake, I had you on a couple weeks ago for Crooked Run. We were talking about barrel-aged beers, but I realized that you were really into, like, cool ships and spontaneous fermentation and some mixed fermentations as well. Absolutely. Thanks for having me back, Jimmy. Um, yeah, we're, we're doing all that, and we're also doing our first little uh, foray into wine as well. So what is it about your native culture series? Um, is everything based on, on Virginia? Yeah, th- at this point, um, the kind of defining ethos of it is just to use um, everything uh, as local as possible, but preferably within state. And at this point, we're up to all um, locally grown grain, um, fruit, and um, ambient um, yeast and bacteria. But uh, hops are hopefully going to be coming soon. It's just that Virginia isn't really... Uh, much of a hot producing state at the moment. Yeah. And let's go back to Patrick. Patrick, so you're making wine up in Napa. Um, where are you getting your, your grapes and how are you going about that? You know, are, are you doing it a little differently than, than most other winemakers? Yeah, about uh, 97% of our grapes come from, from Napa Valley. And then we get uh, sourced a little bit from Sonoma. We have some pretty odd rules in Napa County that require you to use a uh, review to make your wine from 75% Napa <laughs> ingredients. Um, so uh, we, we uh, live by those rules. Um, but the grapes here are really exceptional, so we're, we're happy to use them. Um, as far as our approach to winemaking, um, I would say we have a similar style to some of the, um, I don't know, smaller production wineries here that like, make very bold uh, but low, low tannin, low astringency wines that um, are both, you know, approachable yet powerful they don't age they're not going to age 20 years but um uh, they should be had you know on the uh, you know within the first 10 years or so and just really enjoyable wines so that's kind of our approach that's great and jake t- just tell us more about what you're doing uh you know with with your naked culture series yeah so um it's just a little sub-brand off of our, our main line of beers but uh it's just all our mixed firm stuff that, that we've been doing um and this point, um, I think we're we're kind of hitting our stride with it. Um, it's we're doing all bottle conditioning um, and doing about one of these releases every month. Um, but we're having a lot of fun with it, and it's something that that we find super rewarding. Um, it's not exactly going to you know pay all the bills, but um, it is something nice. And the the uh, main line of beers is done pretty well, so it allows us to, to kind of go off and, and get into this stuff. But Lots and lots of cool ship beers, um, lots of stuff using local fruit. Uh, this kind of focused on Virginia terroir, which is is pretty cool. Um, we have uh, a lot of farms growing fruit now. And then actually uh, some of our friends opened up a, a farm brewery near us that 
grows a lot of grain. Um, it's called Wheatland Spring, and they they grow so much barley and, and wheat that they will you know won't even come close to using it themselves. So they send it to a, a malt house in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is about uh, two hours away from us, um, and then it's malted there, and then we have it available uh, to make these beers with. Well, that's great. And uh, BR, to, to me, you're one of my favorite uh, beer experts. You've been on probably more episodes of Beer Sessions Radio than than anyone. Um, Thank you. What, what, what's your take on on these this overlap of wine, beer, mixed fermentations, and anything that you, you, you've seen out there that you'd like to comment on? I mean, I, I think it's pretty fascinating. Um, it really opens up the range of flavors that you can get. Um, and, you know, there's, while there are certainly big differences between wine and beer in terms of grapes versus grains, there's you know, there's also a lot of overlap when you consider the yeasts that are used. Um, you know, we, we've had, we worked to work with plenty of breweries. I mean, Cantillon, of course, uh, started blending grapes into their beer a bunch of years back. And, um, you know, especially in, in wine growing regions, um, I believe he was on your show, Raphael from Trois Dames in Switzerland. He's in the Jura. So he would work with a local winemaker to make a, a mixed fermentation saison with uh, both uh, either Gamaray or Chasselas grapes for the red and white varieties. Um, but yeah, you get it's it's some really interesting whether it's actually uh, a mixed fermentation with the beer and wine or um, breweries using um, the lees of of you know just in terms of a of a barrel uh, from a winery. Um, it's uh, I, I think it's great. I don't know a lot about wine. I know that I like it. I like to drink it, but um, I'm just intimidated by by vintages and um, and the terroir of you know which side and you know the Cote d'Or, which side of the hills are better. Um, I just get overwhelmed by that. But I do, I do I like the, the the way it's it's a, a nice um, combination with a, with beer and wine. Yeah, Patrick, just to, just elaborate on that and just tell us more about you know, different grapes you're using and processes and everything. Sure. Um, so here in Napa, it's about um, the, the amount of the vineyard or the varietals that are planted here. It's about 70% uh, Cabernet Sauvignon with a good chunk of uh, Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc and kind of a little bit of everything. Uh, but we try to focus on the the more, uh, the more affordable and, um, I don't know, I guess rare uh, Napa uh, varietals. So uh, Zinfandel, Petite Syrah, um, you know, even Mer- Merlot seeing a resurgence after uh, Sideway- that, that movie Sideways screwed it up um, how many years ago. Um, so essentially we're using a lot of different a lot of different varietals on the red side and on the whites. Um, we use Muscat, we use Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, and uh, Picpoul Blanc. Um, but some of the fun, uh, uh, some of the fun things that we are doing is using kind of non, uh, grape ingredients in our wines. So for example, we have a, hundred um, percent Chardonnay that we use, uh, tart cherries with, uh, so it kind of makes it this fake rosé, um, really nice high acid, um, great fruit from the cherries, kind of watermelon-like, um, so, um, try to do things that are a little bit, a little bit different than what's done in wine, but maybe closely mirrors what's done with beer or craft beer these days. If you put tart cherries in, in your, in your wine, I mean, can you still label it wine or do you have to label it something else? Uh, yeah. So we can't say where it's made or what, where the grapes are from and we can't put the varietal. So I have to say white wines with cherries or sometimes you'll see, you know, white wine or something with natural flavors. You can use that uh, generic term if you don't really want to say what's in the wine. Or what's in your beverage, but uh, we, we like to put what's actually in the beverage or in our wine uh, on the label. Um, so yeah, you have to use those generic terms like um, rosé wine, white wine, red wine, that kind of thing. So you don't have to worry about which uh, which slope on the Cote d'Or you you got it from <laughs> with Burgundy. No, yeah, <laughs> right. You know, beer brought up a good point. I mean, there's definitely a snobbishness to to beer. I mean, to wine versus beer. I, I was thinking about that before the show where it, it's kind of like people generally think that beer is lowbrow and wine is highbrow. But in the world of craft beer that we know, you know, whether it's specialty imports or, or you know, gr- great brewers like you guys, I, I never think of it as lowbrow at all. I think the crowd is, is, is actually better, more attuned than the typical wine drinker because I feel like most wine drinkers don't really know what they're drinking. Um, what do you think about that, Patrick? You know, um, 
and I think every I think the the detail the details around wine um, put it in this kind of snobby category and attract people that are very detail oriented, very you know kind of anal and perhaps um, perhaps snobby. Um, and I think the same could be said for uh, for beer as well. If you have a really great story and have tons and tons of details, you're going to have consumers that are going to know every single detail, and um, and they're going to sound like super snobs to their friends. So it's all it's all relative. But when you you know when you can pay thousands of dollars for you know certain for a single bottle of wine, um, and an insurance company will ensure that you know somehow legitimize uh, your purchase, um, the, there's something interesting going on. Yeah. Hey, Jake, um, just tell us a little more backstory about, about Crooked Run, because you guys definitely are making your mark uh, there in Virginia. Yeah, thanks. Um, so uh, we're coming up on eight years uh, in business, um, and we started uh, in July of 2013. I was 25 years old. My business partner was 26. And uh, as far as I know, we were you know, at least the youngest brewery owners in the state, um, but we opened up with Kickstarter money. Um, and it was just the definition of bootstrapping. I really do not recommend anybody ever do this, but it was all we could do. Um, and we built it slowly over time um, from a barrel and a half uh, brewery starting to three barrels and then opening up a 10 barrel location, um, second location. Um, and we've kind of always been doing mixed friend beers. Uh, they were a really, really hard sell at first. Um, nobody really knew what they were. Uh, we're, you know, doing those beers and kettle sours back in, you know, 2014 and just people had no, no idea about any of it. Um, fruit beer was a hard sell back then too. Um, but then that really started changing and now, um, sour beer is a huge part of what we do. Um, and it's just so, uh, important to our business, um, because we try to cater to as wide an audience as we can and having beer that doesn't taste like most people's idea of what beer is, is really helpful for that. Um, but in addition to kettle sours, we always had this, you know, huge passion for, for mixed room beers. And we've, we've had the, the, you know, time and, and freedom, especially, uh, during a little bit of downtime, uh, or the last year to really delve into that stuff. Um, and that's included now winemaking, which was, um, something that we got into for the first time, uh, last year. Uh, we were looking for another project and we were considering a, a distillery, but once COVID hit, um, the price tag on that project was a little bit too high. So we turned to, um, winemaking instead with this idea that we would try to use just existing equipment that we had and really just, um, kind of dip our feet in it. Um, and we made 50 cases of six different varieties. Um, and I thought most of them were going to be trash. Um, we did we can't call it natural wine or we don't want to call it that, but it's low intervention. So no sulfites, um, hundred percent percent spontaneous, um, fermentation using all Virginia grapes. And most of them turned out, you know, pretty decent. So I was really stoked about that. And, you know, we'll start releasing them over the next year and go a lot heavier into that next year. And again, sticking to this idea of offering something for everybody, if we can offer, you know, wine and beer under one roof. And we also started doing these fruited hard seltzers, um, just to have some link for, for everybody. Yeah. Hey, Patrick, um, I know you have some, uh, a good example for me of, of one of your wines. Um, which one are you making with cocoa, cocoa nibs and vanilla beans? I don't know. It's called uh, secret handshakes. It's, um, 98% Merlot and 2% Malbec. Um, it's kind of, Really, it was a really nice wine that already had uh, kind of subtle notes of uh, cacao and vanilla, um, primarily from the oak. And we decided to amplify that by actually adding some to it um, and kind of going for this, I don't know, Merlot that turned into, you know, has the personality of an imperial stout kind of thing. So um, really fun. Um, the If you're like a hardcore wine, if you're the, if you're the Cote d'Or, you know, um, sort of, you know, left side of the hill kind of thing. Um, probably, you're probably not going to enjoy it or probably going to, I think I'm a bad person for making it, but, um, I think a lot, a lot of people are enjoying it if you have an open mind. So what's the mouth feel like? I mean, is it tannic? 
Um, is it, it's just got these different flavors? You know, the tannins were pretty restrained uh, initially on it, just a little little dusty. And then uh, the cacao added a little bit more, a little more tannin to it, not much. Um, so it kind of has this like cocoa powder-like finish, um, but, you know, without drying out your mouth. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of medium-bodied. You know, it kind of feels like maybe whole milk in your mouth. Um, so, uh, you know, good texture, but it's not not thick by any means. You know, when, when you... When you uh... Studied for the master cistron, bringing back to beer. Um, I remember the year that you uh, you you were awarded that, and uh, it, it was quite the story. I mean, master cistrones is still very rare and very hard to get. Um, what are some things that you learned, um, you know, from your being a brewer and from your training that you applied to wine? I know I keep going back to this, but I'm, I'm trying to get you to talk more. That's why. <laughs> 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 totally. Um, you can talk about something else too. I, I just I know you're you're very precise, but I, I want you to talk a little more. You got to get me drunk before I'm gonna talk a lot, Jimmy. I'm you're sorry. supposed That's to be why. drinking. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the you know, the master cicerone, I feel like, um, made me more precise on what. Um, well, I knew a lot about beer styles going into it, but um, I feel like the training forces you to to learn everything about each style, you know, be it from history or production methods. Um, I think that same kind of academic rigor could be applied to wine, um, where, you know, there are, there is just a lot, lot to know in the world of wine to truly understand everything that's going on or to try to understand it. Um, and then I think, uh, food pairings is definitely a, a, uh, I am not well-trained when it comes to putting together good parents are not inclined, inclined to be able to do that very well. Um, my personal opinion is you grab whatever you want to drink, you grab whatever you want to eat and hopefully they work out some, you know, sometimes you can, sometimes they are completely awful, but, um, uh, most of the time, if, uh, most of the time it'll work out just fine. Um, but obviously that can't, you can't do that on the master sister and exam. Um, so had to learn those, uh, both conventional and unconventional pairings and, uh, what what to match things up with, and that can definitely be applied to wine. And it's interesting how um, with the range of um, food pairings that you can uh, apply to beer. That um, just you know, there's a lot of things that don't work at all with wine, um, but there's always a pairing for something, even if it doesn't work out that well. So I enjoy that. I enjoy that part about beers that you can always find something to pair with with your meal. I think it's much more forgiving than wine in terms of pairing. Whether it's totally. a, yeah, whether it's a you know a, a complimentary one uh, or pairing, or if it's something off the wall, that you can, and I, I find that there's a lot of even if they're not the the ideal pairing, there's a good beer pairing is way better than a mediocre wine pairing. So it just I, I just feel it, it tends to open up uh, a lot more upper, uh, There's a lot more options with beer than there is for wine. But maybe maybe I'm biased. Nah, I think you're you're right on. Yeah, I mean. I've, yeah, I've never had a beer with a meal that where it just truly was awful. Uh, but with wine, um, you know, it was probably a few weeks ago. I had one of our really, really heavy red wines and I, I was making spaghetti and meatballs. And, you know, I was so proud of this pe- uh, meatballs and spaghetti. And then I had it with the wine and it's like it made the wine taste um, like super flabby and just like had no flavor at all. And then you get, come back to the pasta and it makes the wine made the pasta overly acidic and unbalanced. You know, where if I if I knew my stuff and picked a higher acid red wine, that you know, things would have been much better. <laughs> well, it's like the old the old wine salesman knew that they would if they tasted you with wine if if you had a little piece of cheese with it, you you, you could you you would buy the wine. <laughs> they say totally. sell with cheese. <laughs> and what what about at the Saint Helena? So at your at your tasting room, um, I try to picture. Like I know where Jake is because he was on. He's in Virginia, not too far from DC. But St. Helena is up in Napa Valley. I know that's north of San Francisco. But what, what's your tasting room like? And and in terms of food pairings, you know, what have you been serving that goes with wine? Yeah, uh, we are. Well, the town of St. Helena is about six thousand people. Very small. But um, if you're traveling through, there's a lot of tourism um, in this area, so you pretty much have to have to drive your car through it to get anywhere. Um, so we're right on that kind of main drag and it is, uh, we have 24 of our wines on tap. 
we focus uh, on the draft menu, really want to have things that are, you know, we can just do a five gallon blend and see what people like uh, before we package a large amount of anything. So we try to get a lot of um, a lot of people's opinions before uh, we put anything into a can. Um, uh, my wife and uh, we picked a designer and it's, it's really cool. You know, just uh, the, the uh, feel of the place actually makes people want to drink white wine. So I saw a ton of white wine, even though I specialize in red wine. And it uh, just feels very, you know, we play 80s music and it just feels like, you know, you just need to be down in um, spritzy white wine, which is, which is fine to me. Um, and as far as, you know, food pairings, we're uh, working on, we're adding another, we're kind of expanding into twice the space and adding a, a beer bar, you know, or tap room uh, for the brewery there. Um, so we're actually going to be doing um, dips of all things. Just think, you know, if you're going to do a Super Bowl party or you're going to, you know, uh, if you're going to any party, really, uh, a dip is always, you know, highly appreciated. Um, so how can we uh, basically add a food menu item that, uh, you know, will, um, I guess, work for those in-between sort of meals? And, um, you know, Napa Valley, there's, you know, many Michelin star restaurants. We're not, I'm not going to compete on a restaurant basis, but I can offer something quirky with our with our weird uh, wines and beers that <laughs> that people will enjoy. So, what's a pairing that would go well? So, with a dip, what's a, what will go well with the wine and beer? Is there a particular dip or flavor? Um, wow, that's a good question. So, I do want to make like a um, it's kind of uh, buffalo. Um, I don't know, imagine buffalo chicken, but instead with brisket. And um, I think pairing that with the big um, Syrah, it's a little smoky and um, tobacco forward and a lot of ripe, you know, plum, dark berry sort of flavors. I think, you know, with that and let's say an Imperial Porter or really just a um, a darker beer that does have some uh, roast backbone and uh, kind of big mouthfeel, I think would those kind of things would, you know, pair nicely together. Um but more trying to make things that are just generally appealing, you know, kind of fit my mindset on food pairing as, uh, yeah, you can just pick anything on the menu. It's good. It'll taste good. Yeah. <laughs> and what about the culture? So you're going to have a brewery as well as the winery, um, for your staff, like the ser- the serving staff is, is there going to be like a conflict where there's, are there certain staff that are going to be more into the wine than into the beer or, or do you, do you see it as that it'll appeal to all guests? Yeah, um, I think the locals are, uh, so most of the people who live in the area are in the wine industry. And as much as they love wine, they're kind of tired of it at the end of the day. Um, so a nice a nice beer usually fits the, um, <laughs> fits the bill. <laughs> so actually making the beer more for the, um, more for the locals. But I think people who know me on the beer side will, you know, hopefully be excited about it too and come check it out, you know, even if they don't love wine. Um, then I think uh, from a tourism perspective, uh, we you know offer a lot of cool Napa Valley wines, but we're also offering, you know, that highly desired beer after after you've been drinking like big old cabs all day. Uh, it's nice at 4.30 to roll in and have like a 4.5% um, Czech Pilsner, Czech style Pilsner or something like that. So trying to make it, you know, wines that are super refreshing and good for that. Um, I'm already drunk on red wine. I still want to drink um, sort of beer, if that makes sense. Yeah, I remember for a lot of the Cider Week events in, in New York, after the, the day of tasting hard cider, all those cider men would want to drink IPAs with me. So um, <laughs> There's something there, man. People do like beer, you know? And we're going to keep talking more about that. I just want to get back to Jake. So Jake, um, also, a little more about Crooked Run and, and the food that you guys are serving there. Yeah, so uh, we have uh, two restaurants at our, our larger location. Um, we have a taqueria called Senor Ramon and a um, chicken and biscuit uh, brunch restaurant called Daybreak. Um, and when we first opened our, our second location, um, we had one restaurant that we were selling to um, was this, this taqueria Um and they were like pretty much the only place that got our beer and distro. And we asked their owner if he wanted to sublease some space in our, our new location and open up his restaurant there. Um, and it turned out to be like the best business decision that I've ever made. Um, because quite honestly, like even if our beer was not all that great, 
um, just having the taco shop there made it an instant hit um, from day one. There's there gets good crowds there, and it's it's tough running a restaurant. As I learned when we then worked with the same owner to open up um, the brunch restaurant, which is really cool. But I'd never run a restaurant before, and it's a lot of work. And there's a reason why you know so many so many people either don't want to get into it or look to outsource it now. Um, but both are doing really well, uh, especially all things considered. And it's great to have food. I mean, like, it's so nice that we don't have a lot of the problems that some other breweries have with just people getting sloshed. Um, the food really helps cut down on that a lot. And it just, it makes it more, you know, friendly to families and people's friends that aren't as into beer or whatever. Uh, super helpful. Um, and tacos and beer, I mean, that's just a kind of hit for everybody. Um, and then the brunch side has cocktails and, and wine too. Um, so the whole thing just kind of works all together. Yeah. F- food and drink are really important for me. That's, that's always my jam. And, and BR, you know, for me, you, you really are one of my favorite beer people and I respect your opinion on most things. I'm going to ask you pick a favorite drink and food pairing that others could learn from. <laughs> oh, Wow. <laughs> that really puts me on the spot. Um, I mean, it's kind of like whatever I'm eating and drinking at a given time, maybe. I, I don't know. It's, uh, that's, uh, can, can you get back to me on that one? Yeah, that's what I, I think we're going to stir the pot a little bit in this show. So Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, <laughs> you know, beer and cheese, you can't go wrong with that. Um, you know, but there was, you know, there was something I had recently I'm trying to remember what it was, where it was one of those like aha moments that I wasn't expecting. And and let me see if I can remember that and I'll, I'll get back to you. Okay. Well, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by HH Bespoke Spirits. The award-winning and critically acclaimed Tailored Spirit Collection features HH Bespoke Gin, Rum, and Vodka. The Black-owned, fashionable portfolio is a lifestyle brand extension to fashion and retail companies, 5001 Flavors, and Harlem Haberdashery. HH Bespoke Spirits is available for sale and to ship nationwide. Learn more at hhbespokespirits.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Become a member and support us at heritageradionetwork.org. So we're talking at the intersection wine and beer. Really, we're talking with Patrick Rue, who's at Erosion Wine up in uh, Napa, and uh, Jake Enrez at uh, Crooked Run in Virginia with B.R. Roya, our beer expert. Um, so let's back to that. Uh, B.R. was asking about a, a favorite drink and food pairing. I'll, I'll say mine. It's, it's I've said it before a million times. Uh, Garrett Oliver's Brewmaster Table Stilton, which is a great blue cheese with a barley wine. So that's something that I can always go to and say. But sometimes I just want like a really good like canned tuna, conservas tuna, you know, with with a simple wine or a simple beer. Um, I kind of I kind of agree with what Patrick was saying. I don't necessarily sometimes I feel like that, that food and wine just go together or food and beer just go together anyways. Br. Oh, um, no, I, I agree that, I mean, I, with a Stilton for me though, I would go more, I personally like, let's say an Imperial Stout, um, where you get a little bit of the roasted malt as well as some of the chocolate notes. Um, sometimes I find, I mean, I guess it depends on if it's an American or British style barley wine. I find that the malt can be a little bit too sweet with a, with a blue cheese, but I love blue cheese so much that I will, I will happily eat it with any beer or wine pairing. Yeah, no, it's a winner. And then BR, um, you know, in, in your work with like, especially Belgian and French uh, breweries, do they typically have food at, at the tasting rooms or is um, that something that you go on to a restaurant separately? No, that, I mean, I think perhaps some of the newer breweries are, are getting into that. Um, traditionally, you know, a lot of the older breweries, tasting rooms weren't even really a thing like they are in the u.s like you you know they might only be open limited hours or they were originally somewhere where you would simply go to pick up bottles um 
more and more they are are getting into the idea of having it as a destination where people can sit and hang out. Um, Deronka, for example, has built a new tasting room and they um, work with a chef and do some really you know nice simple pairings, whether it's cheese and charcuterie or some some small plates. Um, there's uh, yeah, I think it's 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 becoming more more common now. Um, but initially it was more, you would go out or, you know, in, in Belgium in particular, in Northern France, you have the cuisine à la bière where restaurants will make specific dishes with, I mean, it's popular in Brussels, particularly, um, beers or dishes with the, with local beers, um, to be served, you know, in comp, you know, food cooked with the beer and then served with, you know, an additional, the beer on the side to complement it. Is there a question for Patrick that you'd like me to ask? Yeah, I'd be just curious to see what his take is of, of how he finds the the difference between moving from from brewing beer to doing moving into the wine world was if it was a big jump or if it was just more of an easier transition given the brewing background. Oh yeah. Um, so at first it was extremely exciting, and I thought um, I thought I don't know. It sounds terrible, but I thought people would know uh, me more in the wine world than they do. Nobody knows who the hell I am in Napa, uh, which is kind of cool. Uh, I have an opportunity to do something completely different and not be tied to to whatever I was making previously at the brewery. Um, but at the same time, my ego has been just um, has shrunk a little bit, uh, which is which is probably a good thing as well. Um, but yeah, I think people are. Um, Enjoying the fact that that beer is coming and that we can we can bring a little touch of uh, of that to erosion. So um, I think the beer side is very welcome. I think our approach to wine, taking kind of that craft beer approach to wine, is um, seen uh, a little bit with you know a little bit of a um, I don't know uh, not not quite as uh, not quite as welcoming, but, um, but still having having a lot of fun. Yeah. And um, let, let's go to the, the new thing. So there's a lot of excitement going on. So I was talking to you the other, a couple of weeks ago about wine in cans and the TTB. And then uh, you said that you'd be opening the brewery and also making meat. Yeah. A lot of good stuff happening lately. Yeah. With that, with that TTB thing. Um, so basically we were only able to, well, in the U.S., you can only sell uh, wine with certain bottle or container sizes. So things like 375 milliliters, 500, 750 milliliters, you know, normal size bottle. Those things are allowed. Things like uh, 250 milliliter cans that we sell our wine in uh, were not allowed. So basically we would have to package either as a two-pack, three-pack, or four-pack uh, of the same wine uh, to, be able to, uh, to be able to sell it um, kind of as, an, as an aggregate of an approved size. So it has to be packaged together and sold together. Um, so by allowing that 250 milliliter size, we're able to sell cans individually. And probably what I'm most excited about is selling them um, as variety packs. So um, you know, you're able to buy something that's the, the or same price as a, a bottle, one of our bottles of wine, but you get um, three different wines in there. And I think of all the all the cool um, kind of pairing opportunities that come from that, um, both at home and for restaurants that perhaps don't really specialize in wine, but they can buy, you know, uh, a small amount of our wine and kind of have have all their bases covered. Um, so pretty pretty fun. Yeah, man, that sounds cool. I'm gonna go back to Jake. Um, so Jake, uh, just tell us a little more about what some of the things you're doing with your cool ship and spontaneous fermentation. You were talking about natural wine. Are are, are you working with natural wine, or, or what, what do you call it? You call it something else? Don't you? Yeah. So. Um, I'm still really new to this, but um, from from my understanding, there's not really a legal definition for natural wine, but it's a term that's thrown around a lot. Um, and it's, I think it's kind of gotten a bad rap just because it's maybe a little bit disingenuously used for marketing purposes sometimes. Um, but basically, it's, it's wine that's made with organic hand-picked grapes, um, naturally fermented with no added yeast and no added sulfites. Um, there's not a lot of organic grapes that are being grown in Virginia. Uh, they're just too susceptible to black rot. Um, and we wanted to work with what was available locally. So we're just kind of referring to it as low intervention wine. Um, basically all of that, you know, no, no yeast added, no sulfites, but using the grapes that we have access to. Um, and uh, it's, it is 
a little bit similar to also uh, brewing with, with a cool ship in that you are capturing the, the native yeast um, and bacteria that are, you know, in the surrounding area, but it's a lot, I'm going to say easier. Um, this yeast loves to live on the skin of grapes. So if you just go with what's on the grapes, you already have a lot of active um, yeast and fermentation takes off pretty quickly versus cool ship beers where you, you cool them overnight you have yeast and, and bacteria from the air that falls into the beer, and you usually don't start to see any visible signs of fermentation for several days um, afterwards. Um, so it's never going to be quite as robust, but they are kind of similar in, in concept. Yeah. And Jake, I have um, I have one of your beers that's very wine-like, the Drupale, uh, the Golden Sour with raspberries. Framboire lambic inspired, spontaneously fermented, cool ship sour ale. Oh, awesome! I'm so glad those made it to you. I was, was worried about that. Um, yeah, Drupalit's a cool beer. Um, basically, uh, lambic uh, is a protected regional term uh, like Parmesan or Champagne, so uh, we can't use that. But uh, these are lambic inspired beers. They're made with there's a there's something called um, Method Traditionnel, which is the set of guidelines that was developed um, for U.S. brewers to use basically means that it adheres to all the guidelines that Belgian Lambic producers follow. So um, turbid mash, uh, raw wheat, aged hops, um, barrel fermented, um, and cool ship uh, inoculated. But uh, that beer druplet was was made with all the, the methods that um, uh, Frambois-style beer might be made with. Um, and using all Virginia malt and all Virginia raspberries. And that was our first um, Lambic-inspired beer that we released. Um, we released it um, right before Christmas. And I just really like it a lot. Its flavor is very much like a like melted raspberry dull popsicle. Um, and, yeah, we're super stoked with the way that turned out. Yeah. Hey, back to BR, t- talking about um, sour beers. We always talk about language. I-, I love your your – the language that you use, he was just talking about popsicle flavors and how do you see the, the kind of the evolution of, of, of language that people are using to describe flavors in beer? Cause we used to joke about, you would say like the, from what was barnyard nose, you said was horse blanket, but, but no, no, it seems like this I, whole generation <laughs> is talking about popsicles and, no, my thing was that bar- there is no horse blanket in beer. That was my that's my major pet peeve. Um, having been <laughs> around a lot of horse blankets, um, no, I, I think it's great because, and I think this is you know, kind of going back to your earlier question of is is wine snobbier than beer? I find that in wine, it sometimes there tends to be a very rigid vocabulary for describing beer. Um, obviously, it's it's loosened up a bit now. I mean, this is in. in from what I've noticed, it seems though that beer people are more inclined to simply pull out what they taste or what they they what they smell um, in a beer, regardless of its you know whether it's a, a phenol or an ester. In terms of you know, are you going to pull out a, a specific fruit? And some people you know, depending on their palates and their their culinary backgrounds. Um, I remember we used to do the Ale Street News panels um, over at Waterfront Alehouse, and the the chef would come out sometimes to join us, and he would pull out these descriptors just from his culinary background, where you're like, oh wow, yeah, I, I didn't even occur to me that's, but that's exactly what that aroma or that flavor is. Um, so I think you know it's great for beer to be able if it's popsicle, it's it's a popsicle. Um, you know if it's an olive, it's an olive. I judged at a homebrew contest once where the overwhelming flavor was definitely captain crunch cereal you know it was so i think just whatever whatever works for you and and how you're able to describe it is fine i mean there's no right or wrong answer in terms of what you personally perceive in a beer or wine or other you know food or beverage but like for years whenever i if i studied wine or beer you kind of end up depending or used to depend on certain catchphrases which is like why people say barnyard or grapefruit for like a Sauvignon Blanc. But for me, when I hear Jolly Rancher, I just don't know what Jolly Rancher is. I'm serious. Like what's the flavor of Jolly Rancher or, or nose when someone says that's in a beer? Uh, for me, I, I guess it's 
candy like i don't i don't haven't had a lot of experience with jolly they're, ranchers they're, either, uh, so, they're talking uh, about like just that that fake apple candy flavor uh okay yeah which makes yeah that makes sense but um uh, yeah but, jake what Oh, go, Bjorn. Oh, no, no. I was just saying, you know, a lot of people, you know, they don't might not necessarily fall back on descriptors. They just might not even think to, they could go, move ahead of it's, you know, it's it's a dark fruit. Well, is it a blackberry? Is it a plum? Is, you know, you can, I think people need to trust their, their themselves and say, well, this, and, and, and understand that it's not wrong if they say, I get blackberry and someone else says, no, I get raspberry or boysenberry. Um, you know, just say what you what you find in a beer, whether it's Jolly so, Rancher or... So what you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, Jake, you jumped in on Jolly Rancher. What are some other uh, words that people use when, when they're tasting your beers? Um, yeah, so I don't know so much about other people because, like, I, I used to do all the bartending and it was a weird situation where, like, normally the chef at a restaurant doesn't, like, serve the, the food to the customer and then hang out with them at the table. So I did get to be privy to, like, a lot of comments <laughs> on our beer, which... Was sometimes great, other times not so great. But um, the the ones I use a lot, but I find myself coming back to over and over are I use jammy to describe Britannomyces driven fruit flavor in beers, um, which is something we really go for a lot. Um, so bread flavor can get that kind of you know funky like um, quote unquote horse blanket or sorry beer like whatever whatever people like to refer to it as uh, it can it can get that, but. That's usually when it's it's stressed out. Um, Britannomyces yeast is really weird and has a lot of interesting properties. But when it's healthy and ferments um, properly, it can really add this very fruity flavor, which can be kind of raspberry jam slash overripe pineapple. Um, and that's really what we go for in a lot of our beers. Um, the other one that I find myself using like way too much is gunpowdery minerality. And I grew up in a town that had a lot of annual Civil War reenactments. And so, like, black powder in there, like, <laughs> that really reminds me of, like, the taste I get out of some Spawn beers and Lambic beers. Um, and But whatever what I'm trying to say about beer, I, whatever you're trying to say, yes, of course, like, if it's just you as a person talking about beer, say whatever you feel. But if you're trying to talk to customers, just try to keep it to stuff that people actually understand, you know. Um, if you're going all, you know, Paul Giamatti and sideways on what you're tasting and people aren't getting it. They're just going to feel either confused or they're going to try to search for it, even if they're not really tasting it. So just keep it simple. That's a good point. So Patrick, what are some descriptors that, that people are using in Napa, you know, when they're tasting your, your, um, or smelling your, your wines, uh, or terms that you, you like to use. Like we had mentioned Jolly Rancher, we'd mentioned Jammy, um, you mentioned black gunpowder. Yeah. I mean, I think we're more along those lines of how we describe our wines is uh, kind of what we're used to in craft beer. And as uh, it, it smells like what, you know, what you associate this thing with. Um, I feel like things in wine are much more like prescribed, like, you know, blue fruit, red fruit are very generic ways of saying like, I don't know if it's a cranberry or if it's a, you know, a raspberry somewhere along those lines, or I don't know if it's a blackberry or just smell, it smells darker. It smells less, you know, less acid forward. Um, but, um, I think the most interesting ones are, um, when uh, it's, uh, it's kind of at the texture or it's kind of like lingering mouthfeel that you, you get, um, you know, um, minerality. Um, you know, we don't, we don't tend to, um, suck on rocks, um, but it might seem like um, you like to enjoy having rocks in your mouth when you say that this tastes like graphite or, you know, I, I taste the, um, I taste the quartz in this or, you know, crap like that. So, um, but I, I do think that there is the kind of those minerality impressions. I just, I don't think that we have good uh, vocabulary for what, whatever it is, if that makes any sense. Yes. And it's one thing that BR and I have talked about for years back and forth is this, this vocabulary of, of tasting um, which I feel like we're still just figuring out. Um, so like some of your, okay, your particular, your wine, the secret handshake, you know, so there's, there's added ingredients, but when you're tasting it, like in your nose and, and the mouthfeel, how does that come across? Do the cocoa nibs and vanilla jump out at you or yeah. other, other things that you're tasting and smelling? 
Yeah, I think the the initial impression is you get um, kind of like dark cherry with um, maybe some blueberry and then like, you know, covered in chocolate. And then the mid palate, um, you know, some of the uh, almost like a coffee-like character starts to develop. And then as it finishes, um, finishes into that um, kind of sweet vanilla um, that uh, just has a really long sort of impression on your palate and then kind of finished off with uh, dustier, um, kind of chocolatey tannins. Something that you might, you know, you might, uh, if you had like a, a candy that's rolled in cocoa powder, kind of that, that feeling on your, that stays on your palate um, after you're done with that candy. Um, I don't know. How does, how does that work for you, Jimmy? Oh, that's good. Now, now you're getting me. <laughs> the next question is, Patrick, do you taste, how do you taste, do you taste differently when you're tasting wine than, than beer? you know, for what you're looking for, um, or are you still tasting the same way with all your senses? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I think it really depends on the style of wine. Well, on the style of wine and the style of beer, I think say for a red wine, you're looking for, um, you're looking for the wine to hit you in multiple places over time. Um, so you're looking at, you know, in the first like half second, what am I getting? How big is this? Is it, super acid and, you know, kind of hurts my palate or is it smooth and kind of go into this mid palate? Is there, you know, a lot of flavor? Is there a change of flavor that happens, you know, a half second later? And then as you swallow it, um, what's the, what does the texture feel like as it's rolling in you know, the back of your mouth? Um, which I think, you know, gives a big impression on flavor, even though it's just texture. And then going into a, a finish, like, you know, when I'm, when I'm done swallowing, how, for how long am I still tasting that and does the flavor change? So I think, you know, I think a good red wine you want to see, um, well, you always want to see it be pleasant, but uh, it's fun if, you know, the flavors kind of change and, um, and if there's that, you know, um, kind of beginning, middle and end, end to it. As far as like, um, and then, you know, if you're drinking a Pilsner, um, I'm looking for something pretty, pretty different, um, you know, you're looking for a crisp mouthfeel, something that really, um, uh, that you're not getting a lingering, a huge lingering aftertaste. Maybe it's a little grassy, but you don't, you don't want a huge, uh, lingering aftertaste when it comes to something that's uh, refreshing. So maybe like a Pilsner might be similar to how you might judge a, a sparkling white. If that makes sense with their kind of refreshment factor being the, being the, um, the main goal of it. No, that that makes a lot of sense. Let's jump to your some of your new projects. So, mead. Um, tell us about the mead that you're making, and why you you're going in that direction. I, I know that some uh, retail friends say that the the fans of of good craft mead are the most particular about uh, transparency of sourcing, for example. Mm. So you you may be in the most diehard uh, group of fans with mead. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I think it, it, as interest in um, barrel-aged beers has grown, I think there's also been an increasing interest in, in mead. Um, I feel like the two connect pretty well on a flavor perspective and attract kind of the same the same sort of person. Um, so I became interested in a while ago, um, and uh, but never, you know, if at the brewery would have to create a winery and um, it was always kind of prohibitive to, to go that direction or um, maybe just not, not worth our time at, at that particular time. But uh, now that I do have a winery and, you know, I have a little bit, you know, I have a few extra tanks I can, I can use. Um, there's really that in winemaking, there's a lot of tanks sitting for nine months out of the year doing nothing. Uh, what can we do with those? Um, so it's a bit, uh, you know, a little bit of making the most out of, uh, what we have and, uh, kind of entering a new category where I get to experiment more. Um, so these initial meads that we're making kind of don't fit that big beer style or that, you know, big mead, fruited mead style. We're looking, uh, for a way to make like a, um, a refreshing below 7%, um, sparkling mead that incorporates high acid, um, primarily white wine, but, uh, looking at, um, also like, uh, doing a piquet, uh, kind of red wine, um, uh, sort of mead combo. So a lot of, a lot of fun stuff, uh, that we can be doing. So, so your meads are, you're, you're using grapes as well as honey. Right. So we can, uh, so right now we're 
right the second we are uh, just about to add yeast to um, uh, so it's about nine nine play-doh nine bricks so it's going to produce uh, right under five percent alcohol uh, we're going to let that ferment out and then um, we will try you know ten percent twenty percent thirty percent try different uh, ratios of uh, different wines and see kind of what goes together and uh, it's pretty cool we're using um, the yeast that we're using, we're going to get a lot of flavor from the yeast. We're using uh, Berkeley yeast, which uses um, genetically engineered, um, essentially changing kind of the, the flavor profile of, uh, of the fermentation. Um, so super excited about uh, what we're going to have that'll, have that'll uh, evolve. Well, Patrick, you know, this is pretty cool getting you on. I'm still, you know, you, you were, uh, you know, a big name in, in brewing. You were a master of Cicerone. And now you're kind of going a little incognito. I was joking that you're in the dark web now. Um, it sounds like <laughs> sounds like you're coming out the other side, and you're going to have some really cool things going on. So thank you so much, man. Um, I'm going to go back to Jake. Jake, we were, we were talking about um, you know flavors and, and descriptors. Um, I, what I'm impressed with with you is that you uh, can really talk uh, about all, all areas of of brewing. Um, are you self-taught just from just from having your own place, or or what are some of your biggest influences on on your on your learning about? about yeah, I, I'm I'm self-taught. Um, I so I think um, higher education beer is is really great. It's it's not something that I had the the opportunity to to do, um, and the those opportunities have expanded a lot over the last um, seven years. Um, but you know, back when I started, it was pretty much, uh, UC Davis and Dermans and a couple other places offering, um, brewing courses. Um, now the, the way I get information is just talking to colleagues like nonstop and I've been pretty bored <laughs> during the pandemic. So I just, I like having phone calls with people we've brewed with and we talk about just, you know stuff we're working on stuff that's cool you know the direction we see the industry going in um but yeah the the wine stuff we're doing is is you know just again kind of a product of like hey we've got time on our hands and let's let's do something and make some moves to to move us forward and, and see where it goes wow it's great it's great getting to know you man Th thank you so much crooked run in virginia and and back to br just so everyone knows your cred i mean we we know you as an import rep but um, just tell us some of the you, you've been a beer judge. Just tell us some of your credentials, because again, to me, you're you're one of my my top beer people. Um, yeah, no, I mean, been drinking beer for a long time. Uh, helped to live in Europe when I was younger, so <laughs> there was no drinking age. But yeah, started out. Um, my beer education mostly started uh, as a home brewer, um, then went into the beer judge certification program, nationally ranked beer judge for. Uh, at least over 15 years now. Um, and yeah, just can kind of continued. I, I haven't done the Cicerone program. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I still definitely do a lot of, a lot of reading and love to learn from the brewers I've, I've worked with. Um, when, whether it's, you know, talking with them or visiting their breweries and, and learning more about their process and, you know, on their systems, um, just to, to try and, and, increase my knowledge. Um, and even just general beer tourism back in the day used to take the little Michael Jackson pocket guide to Europe, uh, when I would go there for a previous job for work and just go around and check out all the places and all the classics that he described, um, to, to try and learn more, but, um, always, always trying to keep learning on this too. Well, you're great. I'm going to uh, just thank everyone for, for joining me and uh, appreciate the, we've been overcoming technology. We, for 10 years, we were in a studio in Brooklyn, and now for the, almost the last year, we've been recording remotely. And big thank you to Patrick Rue. He's in Napa Valley, California, of Erosion Buzz. Right, Patrick? He's a, it's Erosion Wine and soon-to-be brewing and uh, meadery. Um, That's right. Jake Andres at Co Crooked River. Cro excuse me. Slap me. Crooked Run in Virginia, uh, just outside of D.C., and this is the second time on in a month. It's great getting to know you as well. And, uh, and B.R. Roy, our, our, our good friend in uh, Brooklyn, we usually wouldn't get to be talking to either of you, Patrick or Jake, unless you're in the city. So we've definitely been able to expand our reach um, with, with these platforms. And I just miss 
raising a glass of beer with you. So if I could right now, I'd have a, some of that erosion secret handshake, Patrick. But I think I'm going to I'm going to really ante up and wait for that. Um, your, your new meads that have some grapes and, and honey in them. And I know what you're doing is really cool. And Jake, also, uh, we've talked about barrel aged beers and uh, and your spontaneous fermented cool ship stuff. So really, thank you so much. And um, everybody, thank you, Caroline uh, Fox, our producing intern, Armin Spingen, our engineer. Thanks for joining me on Heritage Radio Network. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right, guys. Thank you. Woo! Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.